singularity. My name is Nicola, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can help me make it better in one of two ways. Number one is you can write a brief review on iTunes, or number two is you can go to interviewthefuture.com and simply become a patron. My guest today is Byron Rees. Byron is a serial entrepreneur, technologist, and futurist. He has enjoyed a wide range of success over 30 years, including two NASDAQ IPOs, as well as the sale of three companies that he founded. Today, Byron is the CEO of JJ Kent, which is a venture-backed company using AI to create new products. Finally, Byron is also the author of four books on technology, and his newest title is Stories, Dice, and Rocks That Think, which launches in August. So, welcome to Singularity FM, Byron. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. So, Byron, if you had to introduce yourself in a sentence or less, say we meet each other uh, at an airplane, you're sitting right next to me. Who is Byron Reese? Well, I mean, I, I guess really I'm a husband and father of four. I mean, if you kind of look at my day and what I spend my time thinking about and working on, working on is not the right word, but you know where I spend my time. It's uh, probably my, my family. I mean, we homeschooled four kids. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about education and uh, we travel a lot because there's no better classroom than the world. And so that's what I am. And then when I'm not doing that, uh, I love technology. I mean, I I don't love, I'm not a gadget person. Uh, I mean, I love technology because I think it's the force multiplier of humanity over the last 80,000 years. And and I'm really intrigued by how people use technology and, and how it, well, and how people use technology. Yeah, so we share that passion about technology and about how we get to use it and the consequences thereof. But before we get there, let me just ask you, which one was then your first love? Was it technology or was it entrepreneurship? Because you're also an entrepreneur. You, you have a very successful list of companies. Uh, so... You're very kind to say that. And, you know, whenever my introduction's read, I always uh, cringe a little bit because it doesn't really feel like my experience. My experience is that I fail almost all the time. Uh, and I, I there's no cute but that follows that. I mean, I guess if there is, it's that I try a lot of things. And I think my failure rate's like higher than average. Uh, but... Definitely. I love being an entrepreneur. I, I know this because I, I started very young and uh, like I, I think most entrepreneurs, they, they're like ready to go. Uh, I remember my first successful business was when I was, was in middle school and I invested in a set of stencils and a can of spray paint. And I went door to door offering to spray paint people's numbers on their curb. And I had my whole shtick about how an ambulance or a fire truck could not find their house because I had just scraped the number off the, no, I didn't do that. But uh, that, and then, you know, they would pay me $5 and it was all profit. Like once you pay for your stencils, it's all profit. Uh, 
and and then when I was in college, I started businesses, and then when I came out of college, like I yeah, probably it is that. In fact, what happened is I had a company do okay, and then I started getting invitations to speak. And good speakers do this thing where they give the same speech over and over, and I'm a bad speaker. And I would always write a new speech for every engagement. I would say, who are the people there, and why are they there, and are they having a good year, and what do they worry about? And I would write something. And once I started doing that again and again and again, I noticed certain themes I I liked writing about, and then I I started doing that. So I write from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. every morning, and uh, then at 8 a.m. I start to work on my company. And uh, that's sort of my life. Wow. And it's impressive how you've managed to write four books just from six to eight every morning. That's incredible. That shows you that great work is, is, is done by small but consistent steps. And that goes back to your point about failing in entrepreneurship. You know, you can fail your, your way to success as long as you make small incremental progress each time, each step of the way, and you don't give up but keep going consistently. Uh, in time, those little failures would add up to a big success. Yeah. I mean, there's two kinds of giving up. I mean, there's giving up on some idea you had, and that's like a rational thing to do. And then there's giving up on yourself, which is uh, kind of the ultimate level of discouragement. You think like, it's just not going to work for me. I, uh, I, I think I, I might do an okay job not internalizing all that failure because it's like those things failed, uh, not me. I mean, but the nice thing about it is when something works, that works in reverse too. Like, I also know that's not me. That you know, I, I, that one worked. Nine other ones didn't, but that one worked. And it 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 takes it away from being something that I associate with me failing or succeeding. Uh, it just those ideas worked or didn't work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you shared with us how you kind of fell in love with entrepreneurship uh, when you were in high school with your first business. Uh, Can you perhaps share the story about how or when you discovered your passion for technology then? And when did you decide to bring both of these together? I started thinking about technology probably systematically when I got my Commodore VIC-20 computer uh with uh, i had the 3k expansion pack that plugs into the back and gives me the extra 3k i could wow. code in it and it would save them on cassette tapes and and kind of the the neat thing about getting into computers at that level is you kind of can stay current like i could keep up when the commodore 64 came out i like understood that and then when eventually i got a pc i understood that and then when it was networked and then when the internet came out and so it's kind of a way to like sail along with it. Uh, and so I would say at a very young age, I said, I'm not a gadget guy, but I am a computer person. And so at a very young age, I got really, uh, I guess into the, in, into computers and what you, all the things you could do with them. And that's probably when I started thinking about it. So was that before you, uh, you had your high school, entrepreneurship venture or or during the same time or well when would that have been 82 i was 14 13 or 14 
That's that's when you got your computer. Yeah. Uh -huh. And and when did you decide to bring both of those passions together, the technology side of things together with entrepreneurship? My great-grandfather ran a ferry across a river for people that were going from east to west, kind of the zeitgeist of his time. And then my grandfather worked on the railroad like for 55 years. He was an accountant on the railroad. And that was kind of the thing of his generation. My father had a corporate job. One job from the day he graduated from college to the day he retired, 33 years. Wow. Uh, and that was sort of the thing that you did in the 60s. Uh, I, I could feel, as it wasn't hard, uh, the zeitgeist the, of the moment that we had reached this inflection point where technology, you know, it famously doubles in capability on a regular basis and or at least has and when it's just a little bit it doubles it's just going from the commodore vic 20 to the commodore 64 it's like eh, all right nice when it gets pretty mature like even like fast forward to today if you doubled all of the technology we have in the world like that's a big deal and so you, i could feel that when i graduated from university uh, so I moved to the Bay Area. I, I married my college uh, sweetheart, and we moved to the Bay Area. Uh, and we, we, I wanted to be a part of that, like that energy and all of that. And we, we stayed out there until we were ready to start a family. And then we moved back to Austin, Texas in the 90s, where we're from, and uh, have been here ever since. So I guess it's kind of the thing of of my generation, like that was the thing that just attracted all the energy and excitement. So as soon as you graduated college, you decided you're going into the tech entrepreneurship and you moved to the Bay Area. And then when you came back to Texas, eventually you still persisted in that same industry. Yeah. Entrepreneurship may be irrational, collectively irrational, uh, because so many more things fail than succeed. But entrepreneurs uh, always think they can beat the odds. And so they say, yes, I know most things fail, but I think mine's going to be successful. And I think society kind of needs that delusion. Some people to have that delusion because while most of them are going to fail, some of them are going to, you know, make it big and, and change, change things. Uh, so anyway. Wow. So, and then when did you bring sort of the, the storytelling and, or the book writing uh, passion or idea or, or habit every morning from six to eight. When did that come about and how and why? I kind of think I'm the least interesting thing about like my writing, but if you're curious, there's actually a small story behind that. Right after I got out of college uh, and I'm a newlywed and I would come home from work and I would watch Murder, She Wrote. And then, after a few months, I was like, what am I doing? I'm watching Murder, She Wrote every day for an hour. Like, what am I doing with my life? And I said, I am going to use that hour, and I'm going to start writing. And I'm going to uh, try to write four pages. I, I thought in pages back then. I'm going to try to write four pages in an hour. And sure enough, after about two or three months, I had a book. And, uh, and I've been doing that ever since then. I've only published four uh, but I've written uh, much more than that. Much more. And 
surprisingly, all my early books were humor fiction. Fictional, funny, fictional books. Like in the style of P.G. Wodehouse. Uh, and so I would write for these four pages for an hour and I would giggle the whole time. And, and that is what got me hooked. And then, uh, and so writing just became a daily habit. It, it did become a daily habit. I don't enjoy it at all, candidly. I, it's, it's, it's slog. Yeah, it's a slog. And, you know, you, you're putting something in ink and you better be ready to stand by that for a long time. And, and, you, and people are giving you like 30 hours of their life and $27.95. And that's a real obligation. Like, that kind of weighs on me. Nowadays, I write books, actually, uh, for people, uh, I think, like me. I kind of think I'm my typical reader. Or my typical reader could would be the kind of person I would like to hang out with and, and go to coffee with. And I say, hey, you'll never believe what I have just learned. And then they'll say, you never believe what I just learned. And that is kind of what's going on in my head. But I don't enjoy it at all. However, uh, I enjoy having written immensely. There's an enormous amount of 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 happiness that I get when it's done and I go back and I, I read it. And um yeah, that I go back and read it. And then I I mean I, I just write all these other things. I, I publish a two hundred page book every year on what my family did. Uh I I mean just lots and lots of stuff that I that I write. And uh I kind of can't not do it, but once I do it, I'm always like, I like this. Well, that's that's how you know you've set a good habit when it's harder for for you not to do it than to do it, even if or when it's a slog, even if or when it's it's taxing and demanding and exhausting and challenging, you still do it because it's such a strong habit that it's easier to do it than not to do it. That's that's incredible. So, so this brings us then perfectly to your latest book, which is coming out next month in August. Um, the title is Stories, Dice, and Rocks the Think. So let's, let's start with this. Who is this? Or, or rather, you already said that the book is for people like you. But what is the book about? And what is the main thesis or the main argument that you present in your book? Um, the book came about because I was at an eye doctor appointment once. And this is in the acknowledgments. Uh, and my eye doctor, you know, asked me what I did. And I told him and I don't know, we were just chatting. And he asked me, you know, we're this advanced species why aren't there other things that are kind of like up and coming? Like they're, you know, they're not where we are. They don't have the internet, but maybe they have the telegraph or maybe they have mail or maybe they have an alphabet and there isn't. Uh, and that was a question I wanted to know why, where by I, things you mean species, right? Other species. Yes. What did I say? Things. I, I thought you said things. Ah, other species. Where are the other species that are coming up? kind of in a long, a long continuum of us in terms of technical prowess all the way to bacterium. Um, and so 
I wrote in the introduction, I wrote the introduction very early and I said, where are the Bronze Age beavers? Where are the Iron Age iguanas? Where are the um, pre-industrial prairie dogs? Like, why? Why (laughs) are we so different in our outcome? People say, you know, we're just another animal. But physically, maybe we are. Like, maybe, that you know, our bodies are animal bodies. But somehow, we are clearly something different. We have civilization and and cities and technology and uh, great works of literature. I mean, we have everything around you. And then you think, well, what's the second smartest animal? And, you know, what do they have? And and then you say, why? Because, you know, I'm, I'm smarter than a dolphin. I'm, I, I, most dolphins. But let's just say I'm only five times smarter than a dolphin or 10 times. I don't know what that means really, but let's just pretend I'm only five or 10 times smarter than a dolphin. I live a life like 1000,000 times more complex than a dolphin. And really why that is, and and we'll talk about that I'm sure in a minute is our knowledge accumulates and uh, a dolphin's doesn't. So I'm born into a set of knowledge that, I get for free and uh, and that's that happened well so that's that's what the book is about it's like why are we different than animals and you know it it then says well when did we become different than animals may I may I tell the story about the Acheulean hand axe sure just let me give a quote here from your book which kind of also captures uh your layout of the land that that you're going to be discussing for the rest of the book. And it goes like this, quote, My book provides a new look at the history and destiny of humanity, wherein DICE teaches about probability, which allows us to accurately predict the future, storytelling allows us to envision the future, and rocks that think, a reference to a computer CPU, enable us to build the future. So, yeah. so we have these three parts uh, about the first part is about stories. The second part is about, or acts as you call them. First act is about stories. The second act is about dice. And last act is about CPUs or as you refer to them, rocks that think. So where does the, you know, what was it? Tichulian, Acheulean, uh, Acheulean acts fit within this? I love this story. Um, there's a creature called a Homo erectus that lived uh, uh, about a million and a half years and is said to be our uh, ancestor. And they lived this million and a half years and they had one tool, the Acheulean hand axe. It looks like an arrowhead, uh, but it's bigger and has kind of a curved bottom. So it's like a teardrop looking arrowhead. And they are, because Erectus roamed everywhere, they, uh, they're all over the place. They're in Africa, Asia, and Europe in great abundance. So many that you can buy one of these tools off eBay. And tool used a million years ago for $100. Like, now, here's the fascinating thing. And that is, um, 
within that million and a half years, the tools didn't change. And, and that's shocking for a couple of reasons. One, you would expect they would get better over time. Uh, that's 80,000 generations of time. And you would just expect that. And then second, you would expect the tool would be different in different locations. Like in the Himalayas, it may be different than in the savannah, but it isn't. And if I put two of those tools that are a million years apart uh, in front of you and said, which one's older? You probably wouldn't be able, you'd have to guess. Even even experts date them to plus or minus five, within 500,000 years. And so why does that matter? Like if, if, if an erectus had just copied their parents' hand axe, it would, it would even drift, right? Like the telephone game. Every hand axe would be a little different. And after 80,000 generations, you would have something completely different. And then there's us. And it took us three generations to get from Kitty Hawk to the moon. Uh, you know, uh, that, you cannot imagine 80,000 generations and a tool not improving. So what's going on there? Um, it turns out, I don't think Erectus was making a piece of technology. Or put it another way, let me say it differently. Erectus isn't making a, cult- uh, a cultural object, but a genetic one. Uh, to the, the Erectus knew how to make it the way a bird knows how to make a nest, or a beaver knows how to build a dam. They, they're born with it, and they do it instinctually. And that's why, you know, if you take the birds and you distribute them around Africa, Asia, and Europe, they're going to build the same nest, maybe for a long time. And so that's what I think Erectus was, just this animal that knew how to build this thing, and we look at it and say, well, that looks like what we do, and it doesn't, because it was 80,000 generations. 80 thousand generations came and went and they didn't change it like that's not us then then 50,000 years ago and and we can debate the, the 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 time but something very recent everything really changed all of a sudden we have um cave art which is beautiful and i mean our our what would you, you know, what would you assume the oldest cave art we find looks like? You would think, well, it's probably stick figures holding a spear or something. And then it gradually, they put a little triangle dress or whatever, and that gets better and better. But that's not what we see. The oldest art we have is beautiful. It's just beautiful. Like, I couldn't do it a hundredth of that. And, and on top of that, they clearly had a lot of technology because, uh, like in Chauvet, this cave in France, um, they used black and they could have just used charcoal, which they had in abundance, but they used a mineral called halcyonite, which you have to heat to 1600 degrees to get it to turn into something you could use in a pigment. And the closest source was 140 miles away. So they're like, I'm not going to use charcoal. I want this dark black. And they went to all that trouble and they would mix it with uh, fat to extend it. To make it sticky, they would mix it with talc as extenders. They're clearly building scaffolding because some of the stuff's way up high. Uh, and that's a different creature. Then we find, at the same time, representative art, which means, you know, there are figurines of things, of, of uh, fanciful creatures or real creatures. Uh, and then we find musical instruments. We find uh, the oldest flute, for instance, dates from then. And it plays on a scale that could play music today, music. Uh, written by Chopin or Taylor Swift, two people you seldom hear mentioned together. <laughs> and so something happened. You had the Erectus who spent 80,000 generations with one tool that they didn't even know what they were making. 
And then something happened to us in, in the blink of an eye that gave us all this ability. And, and that isn't like a new conclusion. A lot of people think that. Uh, it's, it's called a lot of names, a great leap forward, the awakening. Um, actually, that's what I call it. But uh, Jerry Diamond writes about it. Harari writes about it. The idea that some pivotal event happened in our past that really transformed us. And I think it happened to one person one time. I mean, there's a debate on that. I think it actually happened to one person one time. But its signature thing, and that I'm about to stop here, its signature thing it must have given us was, well, not must. The singular thing was likely language. And the thing about language is we didn't, we didn't create language to communicate. Uh, I mean, we use it for that today, but the, the first usage of language had to be thought. It had to be how we organize uh, our thinking and, and how we put flesh on those bones. And that's not mere speculation. Helen Keller, I quote Helen Keller in, in the book where she writes about what it was like before her teacher came to her. And she says that, you know, I didn't realize I was a thing different from the universe. And uh, I didn't really understand that there was time. And, and then she said she learned to communicate. And that's when consciousness, that's when she became conscious, in her own words. And, uh, and so I think somebody got bit by this, you know, radioactive spider or whatever happened to somebody. And they could think all of a sudden, like you and I think. And then that's a huge advantage. And I mean, we can talk, I'll, I'm going to pause, but we can talk about why that's a huge advantage. And then their little group of 120 um, humans after four or five generations, they all had it. And then all of a sudden they're like, hey, we can, we can say this stuff out loud. Oh my gosh. And then we're off to the races for something different. Uh, I'll pause there because a lot of words. Yeah, you, you, you have this beautiful passage from Helen Keller and for those of our audience who may not be familiar with her story, she's this deaf mute who was literally unable to communicate in any way possible before she got a teacher. And then she learned to, to communicate and to write. And she wrote this absolutely beautiful, you know, kind of stupefying essay where she literally talks about the birth of her consciousness. And now you're using this as a metaphor uh, to, to, to exemplify perhaps what you refer to in your book as the awakening or what Yuval Harari calls in his book, The Cognitive Revolution. Uh, and, you know, whether it's 50,000 or 70,000 years ago, there may be a debate there, but that's not really so important. The important stuff is what happened and why did it happen and, and how did it happen even? Like, do we even know any of answers to to, to those questions because clearly the, the shocked story that you're telling us is that Erectus, who was really one of our great granddaddies for a million and a half years, basically did nothing. The, the, I mean, the same Acheulean, Acheulean hand axe for a million and a half years. And then literally in the blink of an eye over a generation or two, we were painting these very sophisticated uh, cave paintings which required certain kind of technological sophistication, certain kind of artistic sophistication, certain 
kind of uh, construction sophistication so that we can build the scaffolding and bring the light too, by the way, because some of those paintings were found like a mile down underground, right? So there's no light there whatsoever. And so there's this literally rupture in the trajectory, or if you could even call it a trajectory from Erectus, which was pretty much a flat line, more or less, and then suddenly an explosion, like like the Cambrian explosion, but only in, in human terms. So what happened, and, and do we know why did it happen? That's a great question. You know, when I was writing the book, and I would tell people this, uh, they would make jokes about aliens doing it. And I get it, they're joking, but, and I don't think it's aliens, but it's so traumatic, that's the kind of thing you're looking for, right? Like something big happened. Uh, there are different theories. I, I, I don't particularly have an a Shulian hand axe to grind here. Uh, but <laughs> one theory is that it, that the historical record is a little bit uh, illusory, that it really didn't quite happen that fast, that maybe it took 20,000 years or 30,000 years or 40,000 years that didn't have, that it gradually happened. Um, or the other theory is that there was a mutation in one person and, and they did. That may seem preposterous but when you think of something like a chimp a chimpanzee uh you know our coldest closest genetic relative their uh, genome is almost identical to ours and yet our lifespan is twice theirs uh i think we're 99 percent the same genetically speaking right and uh they're massively stronger than us and i mean they're just very different vastly different and it does look like just tiny genetic tweaks can have these amazing outsized impacts. And that's what I think happened. I think we, we got lucky. And so if you want to say where are the Bronze Age beavers, they didn't get lucky. Like whatever happened to us, I think has only happened once. And I think to one person. On October 3rd, no, I don't, I don't know that much <laughs> detail. But I think that's what I suspect. Um, but then the, what, all that's interesting, but what flows out of it is, yeah, but what did we do with the power? And so I tried to get past that debate about when and how and all of that. I mean, I, I talk about it, like, where did it happen? We we have these little mysteries, like uh, we find cave art. You know, I, I mentioned the oldest cave art we have and how amazing it is. We, we find amazing cave art all over the world. Well, not that's not true. Not all over the world. But it's as far afield as uh, Chauvet. There's like uh, 300 caves in Europe with cave painting. But then all the way over to Borneo, like an island way far away and in Southeast Asia that dates to older. Uh, not dramatically older, but unquestionably older. And that's a real mystery because it's like, well, wait a minute. Did that, those people become the people in Borneo, the oldest we know of, but we're going to find even older because we're finding it now in places where there hasn't just hasn't been a lot of archaeology. But those people, let's just say in Borneo, did the Borneo people have this happen to them and they ended up in Europe? Like, how is it that you had like the great leap forward seemingly happen in multiple places at once? And we don't have a good theory for that. Like it could be, we just don't know. Some kind of parallel evolution? 
What do you think of the so-called stoned ape theory? Uh, Can you unpack that for us and tell us, I mean, how probable or possible uh, you think that, that it is? Because especially now, it's there's a lot of people talking about, uh, you know, uh, uh, ayahuasca and, and mushrooms and, and all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, psychoactive substances, uh, which are in many cases have very ancient roots among the indigenous people in all different kinds of geographies all over the world. And so the, the stoned ape theory is kind of a, a very interesting theory for that awakening. I give it a paragraph in the book. Um, it's not widely held, but it's also possible. The idea, it's put forth uh, by, well, and the idea is that in our distant past, some group of humans were walking around and they probably came upon some manure that had, from some animal, that had mushrooms growing out of it. And they thought, I'm going to eat those. Seemed like a good idea at the time, I'm sure. And uh, they ate them. And they were they didn't just, you know, trip. They, it actually altered their, um, it actually altered them. Like, and you, you hear about people who, uh, find those experiences life-changing. And, uh, and that, so that was the theory is that they ate them and that, that somehow rewired us, rewired our mind in some way that gave us that ability. I mean, I don't know, obviously, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, but that it's it's a fun one because it fits in that something dramatic kind of must have happened at school, and that would be reasonably dramatic. And it's a very sharp kind of divide from before and after you've had it. Good point. I, I know a, a lot of people who have done those ay ayahuasca uh, tourism. There's a whole tourism industry now taking people to South America and doing ayahuasca. I personally have never done it, but... But they say it's life-changing. I hear that. But I, I've never done it either. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, who knows? I'm sure the, I'm not sure. It's probable that the exact cause will be lost, is, is lost to us. Maybe not, though. You know, the great thing about DNA, we're all, in theory, descended from Luca, the last universal ancestor, the common ancestor that, some creature that lived a long time ago that from whom we are all um, descended. And our DNA contains essentially an unbroken record all the way back to then. And so maybe at some point, yeah, at some point, we'll probably have enough uh, data to, to zoom in on it more. You know, th there, there's three kinds of cave art you find. One is just paintings of stuff, right? And the second one are symbols, which we can't decipher. Maybe they're like gang signs or maybe they're, I don't know. They're these symbols. There's, what's interesting is a finite number of them, a small and finite number of them that appear all over the world. Uh, but maybe that's just because there's only so many symbols. But the third kind of art uh, that's really common, even in the new world, are reverse handprints. And uh, and what 
people would do is they would get ochre or some kind of pigment and they would get a hollow reed and they would put it in there and then they'd hold their hand up against the cave wall and they'd <laughs> blow it onto their hand and uh, leave an impression. And you get these walls that are all these different hands. And there's so many cool things. Like I had a hard time when I, when I finished writing this book, section one stories was over half of what the whole book was supposed to be. And so I ended up cutting like 20,000 words from it. And it's because these topics are so fascinating to me. So why in the world would they make those reverse handprints? I actually don't know. However, what we know from the handprints is uh, 10% of them are left-handed because 10% of them held it, held the straw, which is what we have about 10% left-handed. You can also tell by the relative uh, sizes of this finger versus this finger, you can get a a sense of probably the gender uh, mix. And a shockingly high number of them are missing part of a finger, which we don't know why. We don't know why. Like, is it ceremonial or, or what? I don't know. But the cool thing where this is all going is we think their saliva is still in that ochre from when they blew it through. Wow. Exactly. And so we've started taking bits of it and pulling their genomes out of it. Wow. Yeah, I know. I know. I love it so much. Um, And so with enough of that, we can kind of maybe start to figure out like, well, if it was a genetic change in us, which genes? There are these genes uh, that we associate with language that Neanderthal did not have. And it may have been those. And then there's another set of genes, which um, we don't know what they are, but humans are the only creatures with them. uh, And even chimps don't have them. uh, And other animals don't have them. So there are these regions, the regions, I I shouldn't say genes, the regions in the genome that are completely unique to us. And People think that might be uh, what happened to us. Just like we have regions in the brain that are completely unique to us. But, okay, those kind of genetic and biological differences are, without any doubt, very consequential and important. But let's talk a little bit about the cultural differences, perhaps. And this is perhaps where you can tell me why the first act is called stories and where do stories fit within this kind of story or that you just gave us about the Acheulean hand axe and everything that comes before and after? Why stories? I think we got this capacity for speech. And I think it came along with some other stuff. And that's why you get not only we were able to communicate, uh, but then you get music and It's interesting because it appears that the region of the brain, well, never mind. Um, So I think all this stuff kind of happened to us. And it kind of came along uh, with other things. And I think kind of the most important thing that we got was we came to to understand that there's a future and a past. And that may just seem to be like, of course, that's what, but if you think about it, the future doesn't exist and the past does not exist. Like they're actually reasonably sophisticated 
mental constructs. They're not things. And, and animals don't have either of them. Now, I'm going to get pushed back on that. I spent a lot of time in the book kind of putting the ifs, ands, or buts and says, well, there may be some things like scrub jays that can see a few hours into the future and plan for it. And dolphins, maybe an hour or any case, but generally speaking, um, it's pretty easy to test and animals can't plan for the future. Like don't try to sell one a 401k and they don't have episodic memory. They don't remember specific things in the past. So when your dog learns to sit, it learns how to sit. It's a procedural memory. Sit, sit. But it doesn't remember all the times you said sit, push down on it, gave it a treat. Doesn't. Um, and so all of a sudden, here we are with with something different. Like, not only do we have speech and we can think, but we know that there's going to be a future and there's a past. And we would start, I think, start telling ourselves these stories and they're not once upon a time kind of stories, right? They are stories about the next 60 seconds of your life, the next minute or two of your life, where maybe you're at the base of a mountain and uh, you know there's a, there are huckleberries growing on the top and you want some. And so you think, hmm, how am I going to get those huckleberries? And then you're like, if I go up the front, there's a cave there and I know there's a bear that lives in the cave and I don't want that. But if I go around the back... And so you tell yourself these different stories and then you inform those stories. Like last week when I did this, da, 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 da. And boy, that, that's how we think, isn't it? And, um, and that's, and, and so I called those stories and then only later, much later, I think, did we start telling them, you know, we don't have organs for speech, really. We, got speech so late that we just had to kind of slap together whatever we had available to speak. So I've got lungs for breathing, but we're going to use those to push air out. I've got a tongue for eating, but I'm going to use it to make sounds. I, right? Like you include it all together. And, and stories are the same. Like we, I'm sure we just started off thinking, oh, I could do that or that or that. and da, 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 da. But then you would say that to somebody else. It's like, well, we could do this, this, or this. And then you would assume at some point, remember that time we did this, this, and that, and that that's how stories, but then once stories became like a real thing, I got very interested in them, really interested in them. And I had to resist the urge to put actual stories in the book. Like I really wanted to tell old, old stories, but it, just too many words. So let me just say here for a second that two or three episodes uh, ago, I interviewed a guy called Kendall Haven. And he was one of the first people in the world who did neuroscience about because the, the, the hypothesis that he had was if stories are primary to our thought patterns, then we should be able to see them in the neurology, in the brain. And uh, he did a variety of tests uh, on people by not only changing stories, but putting them uh, in fMRIs, watching their brains while giving them the same story said in many different ways, just to see how story works, uh, what works, what doesn't, and how it actually functions in the brain. And what he discovered, one of the things that he discovered was that story comes before thought. In other words, it's not like we think 
and then we create a story with our thinking and then we remember that. No, it's the other way around. Before we even start thinking, it comes to us in a story at the subconscious level. It comes to us in a story format already there. And then we can more or less choose to take it or not take it or resist it, but it's already formed as a story in us. In other words, we're built from the ground up for that story. And as you said, it's not necessarily for language, but it's for thinking first and foremost. And language probably came later. But but that was what his fascinating discovery. And, and so I thought it's interesting here that to is, bring it. That is. I mean, I would, I would maybe, what I try to do in the book is uh, talk about the oldest stories we know of, like the oldest told stories, not the mental ones you're talking about there, but actually the oldest stories that got handed down to us. And, and I think if you look at 40,000 years of stories, they actually tell the story story of, uh, of, of humanity. So, um, like the, maybe the oldest story, here's an old story. Uh, there's a, a constellation in the sky, uh, that we associate with a bear and it's got like, you know, the, the dipper thing. And it's got a big, long tail. It's got these three stars as the tail. And then the bulk of it is the body of this bear. And all over the world, people see a bear. It's kind of strange because that's even in places they don't have bears, regardless. But what's really weird about it is bears don't have long tails. So here you got this bear with supposedly a long tail. And that little trait... Oh, but, but, here's the interesting thing. Um... That's sort of a Western European tradition that this bear has a long tail. Go up into Siberia, and the tradition was different. Those people see bears, and uh, they still say it's a bear, but those three stars are three hunters that are chasing it. And if you look really carefully, next to the second star, uh, there's another really faint star that you can still see. And that is said to be a little bird who's showing the hunters where the bird, where the bear is. Now, that story, um, we think, was taken across the, the land bridge into North America. Genetically, we think about 70 people came over. That's it, across that land bridge. Uh, and I believe that they are from that tribe, that group of people. Why? Because if you go and you look into Native American stories, they also say it's a bear, uh, but they don't say it's a long-tailed bear. And if their first contact with it being, it doesn't look anything like a bear, like just start with that. Uh, if their first contact was with Western Europeans after 1492, who said, yeah, that's a bear with a long tail, that, that's what, but to them, that's a bear being chased by three hunters and the middle star is a helper animal that's showing them where the bear is. Now, what's interesting is there are there are words in Native American languages that are identical cognates with uh, words in, in the Tet language, I believe it's called, 
uh, from back then. So what do we what do we think? We think that's a story. We think we know words that were spoken fifteen thousand years ago, and we think that's a story that is uh, 50, uh, 15,000 years old, or obviously older, that we still know. And, and, and it's interesting because the earliest stories we have are almost all about the sky. And I can get that. Like if you're, let's say you are just awakened. Let's say you are, your eyes are opened and your, your brain is open. What was like the first thing you notice? You like stare up at the sky at night and that canopy, 2,500 stars you can see in a big Milky Way through the middle. And, and so the earliest stories we have are about the stars. I mean, you, there's even one that maybe 50,000 years old. Anyway, so that's the first set of stories we have. And, and what I try to do in the book is go from there and say, then, you know, we moved into cities and when you moved into cities, you have all these new social arrangements that you didn't have before. And then all of a sudden, boom, you get Aesop's fables. And then all of a sudden population grows. And so you're now seeing people which are strangers regularly. And then it's like, boom, that's another group of stories that we get all the way through. And then, so I actually think the stories that we tell are, uh, like when a kid grows up, you start off with certain stories, but as they age, you tell different stories. And I think that's what humanity collectively was doing. It woke up, saw this night sky, and started thinking of stories, and then more and more and more from that. I'm super, super uh, intrigued by it. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing to see that the same story has its kind of versions across the, the globe, from Siberia to Western Europe to North America. Everyone's talking about the, the Great Bear Constellation story that, in their own way, but th that you mentioned. Uh, okay, so I think it's time for us to move to, to part two, because... Just to remind our viewers and listeners, your book is called Stories, Dice, and Rocks That Think. So we talked a little bit about stories. Let's talk here about dice. Why dice? Where do dice come in the story and why? Why focus on dice? Why? What makes them unique or important to our story? Section two is about probability and the creation of it which I know sounds like chloroform in print. Like, <laughs> I don't think it is. There's not an equation in this book. Uh, but if you're trying to think of something to typify probability, I chose dice. In, in large part because dice are actually prehistoric. Uh, what that means is they predate writing. So beer is prehistoric and dice are prehistoric. And the reason they have pips on them, they have dots on them, instead of numbers, is because dice came before we had numbers. And that's why we just put one dot, two dots, three dots, and so forth. And so I, I love them for that. I love just how old they are. But the reason the second section of the book exists at all is it says, okay, I get it. Section one says, I get it. We uh, acquired the, the capacity for language, which also gave us the capacity for technology and all these other things. And uh, then we could see the future and we could make guesses about what was going to happen. But then we were like, 
I don't want to just guess. I want to know what's going to happen. I want to know what's going to happen. I want to be able to predict what's going to happen. I want there to be a science of what's going to happen. And so the, the, that begins in um, 1652 when two um, men wrote letters trying to solve a math problem, a hundred year, I mean, a centuries old math problem, which is so simple. Like if you had a middle school kid, they wouldn't even get a smiley face on their homework for getting this problem right. Like it is ridiculously simple. And yet, and, and it's called the problem of points, If problem of points, if anybody wants to Google it. Uh, but nobody, nobody, nobody knew how to solve it. And until 1652, when these two guys figured it out, Pascal and Vermont, and then everybody knew how to solve it. And then within five years, you had probability as this fully blown science. And I, that's what got me interested next. It's almost like the erectus problem in the Acheulean hand axe. Again, it's like, why in the world did we go through centuries and centuries where we had all kinds of reasons to make probability, to understand why things happen the way they do and predict it. You know, we had sent out voyages with ships laden with goods and some percent are going to sink. Like knowing that kind of stuff, like why didn't we get science? And the aha is it turned out there were five things about the world we didn't know. We all take for granted but five things about the world we didn't know that we had to figure out. And I'm not going to go through all five of them, but I would like to, to go through one of them because I have a prop for show and tell. So if you had asked me, oh, I don't know, not that long ago, I'm afraid. If you flip a coin a thousand times, how many times is it going to come up heads? Now, I have been trained to say 500 plus or minus. I've just heard that all my life. And and it's true. In fact, the odds that you're going to get less than 400 heads or more than 600 are one in many billions. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. But what if I had not been kind of told that my whole life? What if somebody said, if you flip a coin a thousand times, how many times is it going to come up heads? I would have said, I don't know. Maybe a hundred, maybe five hundred, maybe a thousand, maybe nine hundred. It's going to be all over the map every time you do it because it's completely random. So sometimes it's going to be a lot, and sometimes it's only going to be a few. Um, and that turns out not to be the true that not to be true. What what we didn't know is that there's high predictability and randomness, and that's where this comes in. This is what's known as a Galton board. You may have seen these in science museums. When I flip it up, all these little beads are going to start falling. And they hit, they hit a little piece of plastic and then go to the left or the right. And then they hit another piece of plastic and go to the left or the right. And when you flip this thing, what happens is you get a normal curve right there in the middle. Nice. And if you do it again, you get another Every time normal the curve. Same. So the wow. only, only a few go left, 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 right, 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 right. But most of them go left, left, right, left, right, left. So who would have ever, I'm only going to do it one more time, but I keep this thing on my desk. I flip this thing all the time. If you ever do this and you get a big U, it's like world's about to end or go buy a lottery ticket or something. Cause <laughs> you could do this 
all day long and you're never going to get anything but a normal curve. Why? Because in randomness, there's this high degree of predictability. So there were these five things like that we didn't know. And we didn't know why the future happens the way it does. We had all these ideas that I don't think turned out to be right. Um, and so, boom, we came out of, we, we, we realized these five things. We solved the problem of points. And uh, and then we went and uh, developed uh, probability. Now, what's interesting about that to me is some of the stuff we learned right away. So initially... So governments used to raise money by selling annuities, and that's where you would give the money, the government some money today, and they would pay you a small amount of money every year until you die. And so you say, well, how do you price that annuity? Um, how much money do you give them? If they give you $100, how much money do you give them a year until they die? Now, up until 1650-ish, it was widely believed that your chances of dying in the next year we're the same, regardless of how old you were, whether you're 80 or 20, your odds of not living another year are the same. Now, we know that's not true. And I think there's actually a good reason why uh, we know it's not true, because we don't actually have that much premature death. So if a young person dies in our world, it's like, oh my gosh. But if you're in 1650, you know, mule's going to kick somebody in the head, and they could be 20 or 40 or 80, or who knows who the mule's going to kick in the head and kill. And so they had this belief that the, that you could predict uh, that everybody had the same chance of dying each year. Now, what's fascinating about it is you don't even need probability to prove that's wrong. Like you could on one Sunday afternoon walk around a cemetery and just write down the ages at death of every single person in there. And then you say, wow, a lot of more people were old when they died than young. So maybe old people. So anyway, they figured out like, that and then they could make mortality tables and then when you have mortality tables you can sell life insurance you can sell annuities and then all of this kind of sophisticated financial stuff came into being that uh basically powers uh our world today we we are, have tried to build a world where the future is not opaque to us so that, that we can predict things that are going to happen and uh yeah so that's uh, the dice section. So tell me a little more about why probability is important. What makes it special if we can assign probabilities not only for death, but for other things, car accidents, uh, what have you, disease, etc., etc. Why is that kind of like a uh, awakening if you will, in the mathematical sense, at least, or for the scientific world, that for you represents a break point. Fair enough. I mean, fair enough. Um, what would I say to that? I, I, I think I put probability in this vaulted state because <clears throat> if you think before 1652, before we could do anything, like... We didn't really have any mathematical notation to speak of. Like, I think the equal sign was not old enough to buy a beer. Uh, we, we didn't have X to represent an unknown. I mean, we didn't have mathematical notation to speak of. And we hadn't had Arabic numerals in the West that long. So we had all these Roman numerals. Uh, 
and let me tell you, dividing Roman numerals, like V-I-I goes into <laughs> X-X-I-V, but they had to do it. Like, they still had to do it. So they had no math. Well, they did. They had tricks, uh, which I spent way too much time learning. Um, so you didn't have really any proficiency with math. Uh, you didn't have um, any kind of, um, like, notation. And, and and really, if you think about it, they didn't really have any data either. Like, I kind of poking at them for not walking around the cemetery on a Sunday afternoon writing down how old people were. But there just weren't that many sources of data. Like, where would you get a bunch of data back then the way we do? Like, we, we exude data. So why probability? Well, with probability, you essentially opened up mathematics uh, to a – I mean – you just kind of shot it into the present. And I think that's what gives you the enlightenment. I think that's what gives you the scientific revolution. I think that's what gives you the scientific method. When you look at, um, I mean, I'm not even getting to the commerce part, which is going to be like the big part, but it's, it's basically one of the other five things is that we live in essentially a mathematical reality. In other words, um, everything kind of at its core maybe can be reduced uh, to mathematics. I mean, the weather, in a way, can be. And and you have a very specific date in your book about the first, oh, yeah. the first solar eclipse, right? That, I love that story. So in 1720, Halley of uh, Halley's Comet fame, but he was a renowned um, scientist uh, that did all these other things, uh, they predicted an eclipse, was, which is no big deal, no big deal, except this was a total eclipse that went over London. So like millions of people read in the London Times, the sun's going to vanish tomorrow, and it did. It was off by three minutes and about a quarter mile. Like, wow. Like all of a sudden people are like, wow, this, this, these science people are for real. See, it's it's hard because the scientists in that period were Newton, like nerds. No one yeah, cared about them. No, right? I was going a different direction. Newton, okay, uh, was a science person, but what he really cared about was alchemy. Galileo, you think of him as an astronomer, but he made money by figuring people's horoscopes for them. Kepler, the same. Like that's that was their bread and butter. It was Kepler who who used astrology to make three predictions in a year that war was going to break out with the Turks and something and something, and all three came true, and then everybody wanted him to do. So they were people, science-minded people, but they were still in that world, that world of magic. of and And it was math and probability that said, it isn't that things just capriciously happen for no reason it's that there's predictability in these random events and and so forth so that's kind of the the big one is that the mental shift you could argue gave us the scientific revolution gave us everything we have today but even if you don't want to take it that far probability is how all commerce operates like how all insurance is priced based on it um futures futures contracts are i want to buy i want to make sure i have whatever in nine months how much do I have to pay for it? Um, 
how much inventory do I need to stock? How likely is it that something's going to happen? Gee, even the question, how likely is it that X is going to happen and putting a number on that, that's a new idea. 1652 new. Um, that just wasn't the way people thought. So probability, I think, says the future just isn't predictable. But to be predictable, it has to be orderly. It, and, and it has its own secrets that you can coax out of it. Um, yeah, so that's why. And to me, that, that visceral story about predicting the solar eclipse is literally... Mathematifying, if if I can create that word or how, mathematifying the world around us, bringing math into everything around us and showing its power to take the sun and predict its course, take a person and predict his or her death or chances of dying or life uh, or longevity. Uh, and and the the insurance rates they need to pay, or the interest rate they need they should get, uh, and the payouts they should get, uh, and then take that and apply it to every facet of our civilization, whether it's commerce as a more obvious one, whether it's insurance, whether it's the stock market, whether it's the the movement of the heavenly bodies, whether as some people tried to to push and apparently successfully predict whether there will be a war with the Turks or the Ottoman Empire or not, right? So, so that... Nicola, you said that a whole lot better than I did, and in a lot fewer words. Well, that's the moment when science comes from kind of the nerd closet and into the world. Interesting. And I like takes that. main stage where the, that people cannot ignore and that people have to now contend with. And since then, you know, we one of the examples of that was building clock towers and everything starting to run on the clock. Uh, you know, first in the middle of the of the city, then in every village at least, and then eventually every person of you know a little bit higher than average means would have one of those in, in their pocket. Um so, so that's what makes it so, and that's why I love that story about Haley's prediction of the solar eclipses, because to me that epitomizes the moment where we have the rupture of sort of like, literally, if you will, the dark ages or the pre-scientific wor world or the alchemist world becoming a scientific, mathematified and, and quantified and now predictable and understandable, therefore, world. Yeah, well said. And, you know, to, to just riff on your comment about clocks, and I read about this in the book, you wonder how somebody was late in the Roman era. <laughs> it's like, how, hey, you're late to work. Well, says who? Like, what? So, I mean, and how did they even do that? It's like, uh, yeah, let's meet uh, at 7 o'clock for dinner. Like, how did they even do that? Um, and then all of a sudden we got clocks, and they just had an hour hand. Because it was like, that was close enough. That was huge. Let's meet when the hour hand points at seven. And then all of a sudden they get a minute hand. And then uh, that's the Industrial Revolution. That's like, you need to be here at 7.15 on the nose. And then they get second hands. And then for some odd reason, uh, you know, your smartphone doesn't just have a stopwatch, but it goes to like four digits. I think what the what I put in the book is in case you're, 
called upon to judge an Olympic sprinting trial unexpectedly. And it's like, well, as luck would have it, I have like, why do you even, but, but you're entirely right. That grew up with that same mathematical way of thinking about the world. And to answer your question, how I would say in the beginning, it was the bells, right? So you have the bell boom noon and that's how you know it's noon or you have midnight or obviously when you're in a ship, the bell signifies the next watch or whatever. And that's how, you know, not, not by visually looking at, at the time, at the clock, but hearing the time, hearing the clock, hearing the, the bell telling you it's noon, right? Or telling you it's time for the evening, you know, liturgy <laughs> to go to right. church, right? For the morning prayer, the evening prayer, right? And that's how... You know, obviously, if you're across on the other side of the village, you probably can't see the tower, but you can still hear the bell. And and so, you know, it's time for you to get off to church and, you know, the bell rings. So you probably have, you know, 10, 15 minutes to get yourself and your family and head over to church and stuff and things like that. So that's that's kind of my guess. No, I think that I'm sure that's right. Not a lot of precision, not a lot of precision in it or accuracy, but at least everybody's on the same page. Like everybody hears the same chime. That's a, although only, only down to a town, right? Like even in the railroad age, we didn't have standard time in the U.S. And Absolutely. So, so the, the precision was kind of ballpark, like half an hour, give or take at yeah, best. Exactly. And and uh, the, even the concept of a job, right, only ex- existed after the Industrial Revolution and after we started having uh, sort of uh, train schedules, uh, clock towers, and, and even there was an important invention that started kind of synchronizing time across geographical locations. First, I think it was in Switzerland, just to make sure the trains run on, on the same schedule at the same time everywhere they went and so on. But so that kind of created the urgency and, and the the necessity for punctuality uh, and, and also kind of created the box within which the concept of a job was eventually put in. So you start the, the job, the morning shift with the not the bell, but the thing, whatever it's called, the siren or whatever they had to right. signify the starting of the shift and the same at the end of the oh, shift. Oh, right, right. right? Ooh, it's like yeah, a train. Yeah, that whistle with the string that's always yeah, in the cartoon like a train with the whistle. two dogs that have to... Exactly, and, and you open the factory floor and everyone starts working. And at the end of the day, the same train whistle, usually with steam power, right? Because that's all they had in the beginning was steam engines with steam power. That would signify the end of the of the day. But before that, the the concept of the of a job didn't exist, right? It was more of a vocation, and vo- vocations you you did uh, basically like from the moment you woke up to the moment you kind of fell asleep, unless you had some other high urgency. So if you're a farmer, you tend the crops and you do whatever needs to be done around the farm whenever it needs to be done. No one watches your clock, but you need to feed the, the animals. You need to plow the land and all that stuff according to the season and then collect the fruit of the land before, you know, winter. So there's not that urgency of minute uh-huh. by minute or hour by hour, but it was more like days, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
Yeah, I mean, this isn't in the book or anything, but you're entirely right. Like in the pre pre industrial era, time was cyclical; it was round. And uh, the reason you didn't need um, clock is you had the sun. So when the sun came up, you got up and did your stuff. And then uh, when you came to the factory, time became a line. It just went on kind of forever in a straight line. It, it, it became alive because time was money now, right? Because now if the factory is not working, it's not making money. And so the opportunity cost of time became, pop, became you know, high. Before that, once the sun goes down, you don't, most people couldn't afford candles. Those were, you know, for the nobility and people of means. So if you're on a farm somewhere, the best you could do is probably, you know, a bonfire. And that's about it. And maybe on some special day, you can have a candle. But usually once the light goes out, people went to sleep. And then they were up at dawn. So, and especially as the season changed, as the night grew longer and longer, you know, so did people's kind of daily routine changed and adapted to that kind of uh, growth or or shortening of, of the day and the night. You know, along those lines, um, sometimes these technologies come along that really, I don't know, kind of have these impacts nobody thought about. And before electric lighting, you're entirely right. Factories ran when this when the light came out and the whole idea of a second shift didn't exist of course and the idea that all of a sudden you could double industrial output by just putting in electric lights and working people all night i mean you know it didn't end so well for anyway that is it was it was an unforeseen but once you had that idea you cannot unidea it afterwards because once you had the idea that the factory could work overnight and have a second and a third shift, etc., etc., then from the you know point of view of the, of the uh, capitalist or or the entrepreneur, you know it's expensive to have those machines idle or the factory floor not producing. So time became money, and that's why people became such sticklers to punctuality, and that's why you know punctuality became a virtue. Because first, there was an economic imperative behind it. <laughs> so, and, and of course, the virtues came from top down, not from bottom up. And the top down were the people who owned the, the means of production. And so they instilled virtues all around societies about punctuality, right? It's not good to be late for your shift. It's not good to do this and this and that, etc. Uh, but... Byron, it's time for us to move to the third part of your book, because I think we had a bit of a digression here, though it was a fun one for me. <laughs> it was worth it. Yeah, I hope so. But the uh, third part of your book is called Rocks That Think. So why do you think that now rocks that think are another kind of a rupture in the kind of trajectory of our civilization, among many other possibilities that you could have picked, perhaps? and why do you call microprocessors or CPUs rocks that think? The latter one, uh, and maybe it's a, maybe it is only amusing to me, but um, you know they're famously made out of um, silicon and sand, and it sort of makes them a rock. 
I don't actually think they think. And I, so I really had went back and forth about using that as a title, but I, I, it's as if they do. So we started section two, the probability section in 1652. And we end it in 1952 um, because something happened in 1952, which was they booted up the first ever transistor computer. And that, uh, that, that is a bookend. Well, why does that matter? The thing about it is, you know, we learned almost everything about probability. Well, by the early part of the 20th century, certainly we knew everything we needed to know uh, for a college level calc- um, college level statistics course. Like, uh, and but a lot of it came right away, and so we put the science of probability to good use, starting right away. But and you know we we built all kinds of things largely with pads and paper and doing calculations by hand. Those were very useful during World War One, for example, for shell trajectories and stuff like that. Exactly, exactly. Because they 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 all had tables. All the artillery units of the time they had tables <laughs> that were basically pre-calculated. Uh, trajectories for 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 their uh, you know uh, artillery units. Yeah, and you know I have to tell I, 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 this isn't in the book, but you know that what happened was the tables would have errors in them, and then people would publish them, and then somebody would get a different book and show they had an error, and they would you know, and a guy named Charles Babbage uh, was upset that there were errors in all these books, and he said, and I quote. I wish to God these calculations could be made by steam. And that's a big idea. Like what he was saying is I wish like we've got steam and it runs engines and it's reliable and precise and all of these things. Why can't our math be similar? And he built, you know, he raised venture capital and tried to build a a calculating machine that ran on steam and uh, never finished. There's a, Great tradition among that entrepreneurs to this day along those lines. Uh, later in England, they built it, I mean, just as a curiosity, and it worked perfectly, but at the time, it didn't. So that's what we were having to do, like you said, is make publish these big books where you'd look up the log of whatever and hope it was right, and and you would do all that stuff. But then we said, no, 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 we need, calcul- we need machines that do this for us because life is becoming so complex, we... we can't keep up with the math anymore. It's not that the math is different. It's that there's just so much data now and there's so many things we want to know. Why don't we build some machines that could figure it? So that's when we started making computers. I tried to figure out the number of transistors that have been made. I ever, I mean, they've only been made since, uh, you know, for 75 years, but in that time, I think we've made as many transistors as there are neurons on the planet. So you have a hundred billion. I have a hundred billion. Honeybees have billion, uh, a million. Like you think everything and add it up, and that's just how much we've kind of transistorized this planet. And so what we said: let's build machines that can do these calculations for us. And then what they hoped is that the machines would predict the future better. And we know that, like they wanted um, computers to make better weather forecasts, right? Uh, but, but everything, like we wanted everything better. And so what happened was, um, 
we built these machines in the hopes that we could make the future as knowable as the present. And that's what people want to do. And then one day we plugged sensors into them so they could collect their own data and then they could collect data and they could, but if you think about it, and I, I know we're going to go deep into this, but just to say at one time, AI is just probability. All it is, is just a probability science. Joshua Bach, who was uh, here for his second appearance uh, a couple of weeks ago, in, in his first appearance, the most notable thing that he said was that AI is basically statistics on steroids. Yeah, no, that's so true. It's it's really amazing because if you read the writing in the 50s, do you know artificial intelligence, uh, there had been hope in the 50s, some computer scientists got together at Dartmouth and said, we should solve this AI thing this summer. And then, um, and the reason they thought you could do it in a summer is they thought intelligence was probably just a few rules, a few heuristics like Newton's laws or Maxwell's laws turned out not to be that turned out to be a lot more complicated. So then they had to say, well, okay, then how are we going to do it? And the main way we do artificial intelligence today is we gather a lot of data about the past and then you analyze it and you look for patterns in it and then use those patterns to make predictions about the future. And all of those predictions always come with a probability attached to them. I think there's an 82% chance this is going to happen and not that. Um, and that's what we wanted to do. And that's where we are now. We're in Act 3. In fact, we're really at the beginning of Act 3. So. Yeah, we're barely scratching the surface. So when, for example, Watson was playing Jeopardy, he was able to to not only guess the the answers, but he was able to assign a probability about how certain... Watson was about knowing or having the correct answer. Uh, but let me ask you this, because on the one hand, I know from reading your book and actually watching a number of your other interviews and also skimming through a few other your books and, and, and so on, that you are kind of a techno-optimist and yet an AI skeptic. That is very true. Now is the, t the time for us to... Tell us about that, because you did write a whole book specifically focused on artificial intelligence, and yet you ended up kind of with a kind of a skeptical conclusion or attitude towards it in the end. So why is it that you see yourself as a techno-optimist and an AI skeptic? I've never had uh, that applied to me, a techno-optimist and an AI skeptic, and it is completely true. Well, that, that's how I defined it for after watching you do a number of other interviews and stuff. That's how I yeah. thought is the shortest way to, to put who, who you represented or were in those. Okay, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend five minutes on this, if that's okay. Because, I mean, you're right. I wrote a whole book on it. Um, when we say artificial intelligence, we, we mean two different things. And, and they're used indiscriminately in the media. And, and people sometimes think they're a continuum that we're really talking about the same thing, but is it like really good or really primitive, but we're not, there's two things. And one's called narrow artificial intelligence. And it's an AI that can do one thing like identify spam 
or identify a cat or route you through traffic. It does one thing. And again, what I was saying earlier about how you train it on data, more data, the better. You tell it when it's right and wrong. It learns how to be right more often. Um, and we do that and it works and I'm not the least bit of a skeptic about that. If we were to stop in innovating in that world, it's going to be decades before we can do all, before we do all the things we know how to do. There's so much we could do with just the technology we have uh, that we just don't have the people to do. That's really it. And because we don't have the people, we don't have the clean data. And because we don't have the clean data, we don't have it. Then there's this other thing called general intelligence. <clears throat> and it is a uh, hypothesized form of AI that uh, is as versatile as a human. We have seen this in, um, it seems very real to us because we see it in movies all the time. So you got Commander Data off Star Trek Next Generation. You have C-3PO out of Star Wars. You have Roy Beatty, the replicant in Blade Runner. You have uh, Her, that movie. You have um, Ex Machina, Eva. And so we see all of those, and that's general intelligence. Um, and 95% of the money goes into the first one. And the number of people working on the second one is very few. I Maybe 15 groups or something like that. Like it's a relatively small number of people trying to work on it. It's recently made the news because uh, Google had a big breakthrough. Uh, but I think it's fair to say nobody has shown that they know how to do this. Now, I used to host this podcast called Voices in AI, and I loved it because I could, there were all these leading thinkers in AI, including yourself, and they would say yes if I invited them on my podcast, and we would talk about it for an hour. It was a long, contemplative, and I would always ask them, do you believe general intelligence is possible? I had 120 guests on the show, um, near as I can remember, I've tabulated this, I think of... Uh, Four people said they don't think it's possible. I think I remember who all four of them are. Everybody else I asked, say 96 for round numbers, said, of course it's possible. And then you say, well, when will we get it? And then I would get estimates between five and 500 years. Some of the five years were over five years ago, by the way. Um, <laughs> and I won't name names. Uh and then I say, well, wait a second. Why are they all over the map like that? Like, if we don't know how to make it, how are you so sure we're going to build it? And they say, uh, everybody had the same answer, really. And it was, I know machines can have general intelligence because we are machines with general intelligence. And for me, that was this big aha moment, which was, I see, this is kind of a mechanistic reductionist view of people as machines and they're right like if people are machines then general intelligence isn't just possible it's inevitable like it will come but are people machines and when i would push back on that i would always almost always be accused very politely of indulging in magical thinking saying well you clearly have to appeal to a soul or something mystical that lives outside of the laws of physics to believe that we're not machines. And that's where I part company with them uh, because I don't think that's true. Um, certainly if you believe in the soul, then that's a great argument for why we're not machines. Uh, but even if you're not 
and you're ambivalent on the soul. Uh, here's what my thinking sounds like. Uh, we have these brains. We don't know how they work. Like, if I were to ask you, a listener to this program, some question about your distant past, like the name of your first grade teacher or something like that, you would be able to recall it probably. And even though you probably haven't thought about it in a long time, and that's really a mystery to us because you don't have a first grade teacher slot in your brain that he or she is stored there that you access. And and the fact that you can pull it back so quickly, like, oh my gosh, how in the world do you do that? It's been 39 years and I still remember her name and I'm shocked. <laughs> what was her name? Sankova. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I can't say I remember all the other ones after that. I remember a few of them, but not all the other ones. But it's shocking me that now that you brought this up, I can turn back in and literally one second, bring her face and her name straight up. I love that. I love, you know, it's, I love technology, but I'm really a humanist. I just think we're pretty amazing. And that's why we're going to get to a techno optimist here in a minute. Um, but I'm wrapping this up. And so here we are with these brains we don't understand. And frankly, there are people who are born missing over 90, up to 95% of their brain who don't even find out until they're adults and get an MRI. Uh, you know, they, they have do perfectly fine in school and go on and all of that. With I never virtually... heard of those people, but wow. Yeah. Um, I'll send you a, a research. I'm, I'm writing about this topic right now for the next book. Um, so... Do they have a name, those people? Like, is there a medical, like... Uh -huh. uh, it's well documented. There's lots of them. And only about uh, 15 to 20% have IQs above 100. But among them, they're, you know, 128. You know, they're just professional people living their life. They go in and get an MRI and the whole thing's like empty. But let's, let's, not, let's not use them. We're just going to stick with our, our brains. So even if we figure the whole brain out and it is just a machine. You're not home for general intelligence because you really have to figure out the mind. Mind is a controversial topic, but what, what I mean with it is, you know, you have all these organs that do different things and you know, your heart beats and your lungs breathe. And somehow your brain, we believe does all these other things. You have a sense of humor. Your heart doesn't have a sense of humor, right? You have empathy. You know, your heart doesn't. Your liver doesn't have empathy. So we have all of these abilities that that are believed to arise from the brain. I don't know if that's true. They could actually be distributed through the body. Uh, yeah, they could be distributed through the body in all kinds of ways. They could be stored in cellular memory. And there are all kinds of ways that they don't have to be in the brain. But let's just say for a minute they are. So now you have this mind that you don't know why you're creative, but your lungs aren't creative. Like what's, what's up with them? And then consciousness, like, and you may need consciousness for general intelligence. And what is consciousness? Consciousness. We, we say we don't know what it is, but we know, we know what we're talking about. Like a thermometer can measure temperature. You can feel warmth. And those are two very different things. And so we experience the world and nobody knows how matter because we're made out of the same elements as everything else you see 
can experience the world. Like have, I'm warm, right? Like a rock doesn't think that. So brains we don't understand give rise to minds we don't understand, give rise to consciousness. And then these people say, well, yeah, but we can build that in a fab. And that's where I, I'm like, I don't have that much faith. Like who's, who's, who's indulging in magical thinking at that point? Uh, really? Like, why can we build that? Like ever? Like, why would you even, I'm not being critical or dismissive. They very well may be right. Don't get me wrong. General intelligence may be possible and but I've not seen any proof or evidence or anything that even remotely makes me think it. And last thing I'll say on that is the people I know who work in AI, it's like the more they're, the closer they are to code, the further away their estimate when we're going to get it is. As a rule of thumb, I would stand by that. Uh, and because they know we're down in the, in the weeds, just dealing with. So, the, the open question, to, to close on this topic, the open question is, is that narrow AI, studying data about the past, looking for patterns, making predictions enough to make a general intelligence? And what happens is you get like chatbots that are really good, but that's all they are. But they, they look like they are more than that. But they're just doing that. There was a man in the 60s named Weizenbaum, who was an early computer uh, science guy, and he made a chatbot called Eliza back in the 60s. And you would say to Eliza, like, I feel bad. And Eliza would say, why do you feel bad? I feel bad because of my mother. Why do you feel bad because of your mother? Like, it was a simple program designed to, like, bring that out of you. And what he saw, what what Weizenbaum saw, was people were pouring their hearts out to it. And that really bothered him. And he turned against it. And he said, you know, when the computer says, I understand, it's just a lie. There's nothing there that, there's no I, and there's nothing that understands anything. So I'll pause there before I go now. Why am I a techno-optimist? Yeah, so uh, just uh, to reiterate, uh, your argument is that the argument from us as an example of uh, general AI is at best an, arg an argument of one with a sample of one and probably less than one because it's still arguable whether in your view we are machines or not. So at best, if we are machines, it's a sample of one. And if we're not machines, then their argument is supported by a sample of zero because we don't have any other examples. Um, by the way, uh, I did probably the last interview with Marvin Minsky before he passed away. Oh my out, gosh! Before he passed away, <laughs> and and he said he said the same kind of thing that that you said. He basically said that in his time, which is to say in the seventies and eighties, more people were working on general AI than today, which kind of blew my mind. He said that the Turing test is a joke. And he said that uh, he wasn't impressed by, you know, Jarvis or, or uh, Watson or uh, not Jarvis, <laughs> Watson and Deep Blue and, and all those those things that happened. Jarvis is pretty impressive, but yes. Jarvis, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Watson and the other ones actually were, were not so impressive for him because he still classi classified them as uh, examples of narrow AI and not general AI. So he said they still don't know that you can pull with a string, but you can't push with it, for example. Oh. 
that's one of his favorite uh, examples and so on. And I also lastly interviewed the professor of computer science. Her name is Melanie Mitchell. Uh, she wrote a book called Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans. And she's a Davis professor of complexity at the Santa Fe Institute, but also a professor of computer science at Portland State University. And she was talking about the, the fallacy of uh, continuity. And what she, she uh, exemplified it was with this story. So let's say you want to go to the moon. And you say, look, my goal is to go to the moon. So here's this beautiful redwood pine tree. It's about 320 feet. And I'm all the way to the top. You see, therefore, clearly measurable, it's a factual statement if I say that I am today closer to the moon than I was yesterday when I was at the bottom of this gigantic redwood or giant sequoia, let's say. But the fact of the matter that this claim misses is that you need a qualitative paradigm shift to get from climbing a tree to the moon. And, and for her, this is what's needed to go from narrow to general AI. So the, the, the example she gave was like uh, saying that narrow AI is like climbing the tree and we are picking the low hanging fruit. And we're thinking that there's a continuity from where we are today to where we wanna be with general AI. But that's not necessarily the case. And in fact, there may be many reasons why that's not the case at all. And therefore, saying that we're closer to building general AI is like saying we're closer to the moon after we've climbed up this very big, huge, giant sequoia tree, for example. That's really uh, useful. I, you got such a response with me about Marvin Minsky because I was writing my AI book when he passed and I had an invitation to go up and ask him all my questions and uh and then that intervened and, and so it was like i'm glad you know you get to have that conversation i asked my hundred guests on voices do you believe um we can use existing techniques to get us to agi <clears throat> and it's the only question that they were really split on and i would say it was 60 40 no we can't we can't uh but there was a sizable minority that believed we could. Uh, but anyway, that was a thing they had less agreement on. Yeah, to be honest, I, forgive me, don't remember uh, doing the interview with you, uh, but today my thinking has come to be that we need a hundred, you know, Nobel prizes worth of breakthroughs to be able to get from where we are today to where we need to be to get to general AI. In other words, it's grossly, vastly insufficient where we are today, impressive as it may be, we need a lot more, you know, huge, many, many, many huge breakthroughs, Nobel laureate level breakthroughs to get from here to there. I wrote an article uh, that, uh, so I got the, the two leading desktop assistants, the one from Amazon, the one from Google. I'm not going to say their names because if somebody's listening, I don't want to activate it and all that. But you know what I'm talking about. Uh, one of them, by the way, the Amazon one, has a name, a human name, and the other one doesn't. And uh, I have 
some problems giving those things human names. But again, relating to like how hard we've had to fight to create something called human rights. Any case, I won't go down that unless time permits. Um, the questions, the the article though, was I would pose the same questions to them, and they would give me different answers. And they are questions you would think should have the same answer, like how many minutes are in a year? Who designed the American flag? Who's burying Grant's tomb? Um, and so forth. And they gave me different answers. And you say, well, how can that be? Well, take the first one, like how many minutes in a in a year? One of them gave me 365.24 days, a solar year. And one gave me 365 days, a calendar year. So what they need to be able to say is, well, wait a minute. Do you mean a solar year or a calendar year? Because it makes a difference. Or with the flag. One said Betsy Ross and one said Robert Hecht. And you're like, well, who's Robert Hecht? Well, he's the person that designed the 50-star configuration on the current flag. And so what it should say is, well, do you mean the original flag or the flag we have today? And that's what they can't do. I mean, that's a whole different. And then try to make those problems really complicated like this. Um, doctors, Dr. Smith is having lunch at a restaurant he eats at often. He receives an emergency call, runs out the door, forgets to pay his tab. Are the owners likely to call the police? And then you're like, well, he's there a lot. They probably know him and, you know, saw he dashed out. They know he's a doctor. I'll just grab him next time he's in. Uh, but I mean, obviously they can't do anything like that. Like those kinds of answers. Like my first question, I still ask those systems are what's bigger a nickel or the moon. And, uh, only now are they, are they getting that right? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So it's time for us. Time is advancing though. So let's, let's move to our more kind of general technological conversation and, and discuss about, we've discussed already the, the AI skepticism of yours. Let's now talk and move on to the techno-optimism here. And perhaps uh, a good way to maybe jump into that, if we don't go ahead of ourselves too much, would be to to give a quote from, I think it was an interview of yours I watched, where you said that, in fact, you're so optimistic about the future uh, about technology and the future, our future in general, that, quote, unless we get hit by a comet, there is no way to mess this up. And then uh, you you went to give us the, this whole kind of uh, progression line that we had moved from barbarism to civilization today and all the things that civilization, our civilization has given us that we should be proud of and, and so on and so on. So is that a good starting point? And, and why do you think that technology is so powerful? Or what is the reason that makes you think that, quote, unless we get hit by a comet, there is no way to mess this up? I stand by that to start with. I did not mean that phrase. I meant that literally. And, um, and I stand by it. So I'll give you my... Um, you know, you and I have had wonderful conversations on this topic, and uh, you you always have uh, very compelling points. So I'll I'll just tee up kind of 
my basic logic and then, you know, dive in wherever you like. Um, there, I, th I think kind of the, the history of, of humanity has uh, largely been an issue of, of scarcity. Like in a way, I think our biggest problems early on were there just wasn't enough good stuff for everybody. Like uh, we didn't, we didn't have enough medicine because we didn't have any medicine. We didn't have enough food because we were incredibly inefficient at growing it. And we, we lived in uh, areas where we didn't, I mean, one thing after the other, leisure time, education, everything. And, and for most of human history, survival has been kind of a full-time job. It takes 90 something percent of us to grow our food. And that's the story of our planet. So then you say, well, what has happened? And I think two things have happened. Like one, I think is, I think, a, well, uh, I think it's that we have, uh, that we, we learned a trick and the trick is we use technology to multiply what we're able to do. And we use, uh, and, and we therefore overcome. You're talking about the agrarian revolution? Not just that. I mean, I would, I would abstract it all the way out to your body uses a hundred Watts of energy right now. And then we, uh, we learned how to harvest, uh, get an ox, which uses 2000, 200 Watts. And we could grow our energy consumption linearly, which is directly tied to our productivity to overcoming scarcity. Energy is, uh, the, kind of the, the core of that now in, in the West, uh, if you take all the electricity usage and divide it by the number of people, we're all using 10,000 watts of power instead of 100, 10,000. And so you have this force multiplier of 100-fold that um, means we can overcome these hurdles. So that's point one. Point two is I think we're fundamentally good. And the reason I believe that is because if we were basically overwhelmingly bad, we never would have gotten to where we are. If, if I, I sold something on eBay and I sent it to the person and they said, I never got it. No, no. They said, I got a box, but he just put a brick in it. And eBay said, all right, we'll give you back your money. And they gave him back his money. I did not put a brick in that box, right? I mean, I was, I was just, ripped off, right? If enough people did that, credit cards wouldn't work. eBay wouldn't work. If if one in four people did that, if one in four people who ordered something online said, I just got a box of rocks, none of it would work. Like our entire world is built on the fact that you can trust most people most of the time. And, uh, you know, in all my years of eBay since 1998, first time that happened to me. So uh, that's, a, that's kind of a silly example, but the world relies on the goodwill of everybody to work. And it doesn't require everybody to be good, but it requires us to overwhelmingly be good. That's number two. So, and there's only three, so I only have one more. Um, so one, there used to be scarcity. Now we have this energy with which we can do, overcome that if we so choose. Second, we're by and large good. Third, we have really had, uh, along the arc of history, nothing but up and to the right. Phew. Hard thing to believe if you saw the paper this morning. Like, I, I know that. <laughs> but um, 
if you pick any measure of progress and you measure it against 50 years ago or 100 or 1,000, anywhere in the world, really, we're doing better. Um, and what are, what are those? Uh, life expectancy, infant mortality, access to education, individual liberty, self-rule. Uh, we've abolished legally uh, legal slavery in most in all places, the illegal kind still exists. We've um, there is some evidence that says that life expectancy actually dipped in the last three or four years. Right, but that's the thing is you can't say that would be like saying life expectancy dipped the day before yesterday uh, because it was. I mean, that's the challenge is that pessimism is so easy to slip into because of yesterday's headlines. And it's easy to say what happened today is normative. Yes, 10,000 years of progress, I give you that, but yesterday was terrible. That, that is not counter to the trend. The trend is long and to the right, uh, up and to the right. Now, I think it's enough to kind of just lay out the broad position. Therefore, what can we say? Technology will continue to advance. I assume we agree on that. Technology will advance. At some rate, it's going to continue. Um, and therefore, the force multiplier increases. And if that force multiplier is multiplying good people over bad people disproportionately, they do more good. You know, I, I traffic, and I'm, this is the last thing I'll say, I traffic in all the stories about how technology uh, is and will be used to alleviate pain and suffering in this world. If, if, if everybody had clean water, half the hospital beds would be empty. Well, that, that's a technical problem that we can overcome. We haven't, but we can. Um, 78% of hungry people, uh, no, food. We already grow enough food to feed everybody. In the U.S., we throw away enough to feed all the hungry people. But there's still a billion hungry people in the world. Why? Because 70, 79% of them live in countries that are food exporters. But but that doesn't quite fit with what you just said, does it? Like, you said three, three points. First is mm -hmm. the point of uh, abundance, what Peter Diamandis calls, right? Mm -hmm. Formerly scarcity, now we live in the epoch or the age of abundance. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. Peter's whole argument, that the future is better than you think. The second point is people are fundamentally good. Most. And, sorry? Most people. Yeah. Most people are fundamentally good. So most people, most of the time, are fundamentally good. And then lastly, yeah, we may have had some dips here and there, but if you look at it on the grand scheme of things, for the last 10,000 years, we've done tremendous progress. Our civilization, this, that, and the other, is moving forward, etc. So... Well, the only thing I would say to that is not just 10,000 years. I mean, I wouldn't trade our life today for our life 100 years ago or 200 or 500 or 900 or anything. So continue. Sure. Yeah. Those are part of the trajectory that, let's say, started. Okay. Fair enough. Started. But so the question then is, if all those things are true, if we live in, a, in the age of abundance, if we, most people are good, and if... Uh, we have all the technology that we need and that technology is only going to get better. Why is there people that are still hungry today? And it's not only as you just were about to say in countries that have, you know, problems producing their domestic food, 
Because if you look at it, the United States No, no, States just is the opposite. 80% of them live in countries that export food because their own citizens can't afford to buy it. Right. And so, but doesn't that negate the previous three points? So, if you heard my three points as everything is better constantly, technology now solves all problems and all people are good, then you're right. But I didn't say any of those three things. But... Yes, that's correct. That's fair enough. Okay. But the point is, there should be a point in which those problems which are solvable with the technology that we already have and solvable with the abundance that we already have and solvable by the good people that we already have in abundance present, they should have been solved, those problems. But yet, they're not. You know, look, I wish I could say that's not true. Uh, you know, I mean, that's an indicting, indicting, uh, that's an indicting statement about us. And technology is this force multiplier that does all these things. It makes us grow more food and all these things. It doesn't make us better people. Like, it's agnostic on that point. It makes us, um, and and so, and it, it, it isn't a panacea. It isn't a cure-all. So there are, there, you know, is there more democracy today than was a hundred? I don't even want to say democracy. Is there more self-rule today than a hundred years ago? Is there all, all of it? Like there's still a ton of work to do. And I hope I wasn't saying that. And I hope nobody heard my, unless we get hit by an asteroid thing to say, Hey, it's all going to take care of itself. Don't do anything. Like it's every one of my books ends with like, We've dreamed of utopias in this world for centuries. I spent a lot of time reading utopian literature because I just got curious, like, what did people used to think a utopia was? And it, it really began, I mean, coined by Thomas More and all that, but it really began in the 16, 1700s that people write, wrote about this kind of idealistic... Maybe with Plato's Republic, actually. Fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. But when you... Yeah, Okay. When you get down to specifics, like in, in the more modern age where people have written, like, what does a perfect world look like? They predict, uh, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have monarchies, people got to pick their own rulers? And wouldn't it be great if you got to choose your own religion and you weren't told what religion by your government? Wouldn't it be great if we had public education for everybody? Wouldn't it be great if men and women had legal were legally equal? Um, what if we had public education for everybody? Wouldn't that be great? And on and on, and our world hasn't delivered on all of those to everybody, but it has started delivering on those to many people. And so now, in all my books, I always say, now we, we dream of new utopias. We dream of ones where there's not anybody who's hungry, and there's not anybody who, like, even to this day, there's massive numbers of people whose full-time job is survival. And there could be... Um, a Mary Curie, there is a Mary Curie and a Leonardo da Vinci and all that living, and so among among them, and and their potential will never come to be, and that just like is just so so sad. Uh, so I would say I end my books by saying we have we can build a utopia. I, I would assume you agree with this statement. Uh, we could build a utopia if we had the will to do so. Do you agree what? with that? I think where you need to do better is with your arguments at, to say either that those three things that you mentioned are 
insufficient in their own right to bring the utopia that you're talking about because they haven't done so so far and we don't know if or when they would do so if they haven't done it so because we've had those for for in different locations for in some cases well over a century or if those three things are sufficient then they're perhaps not present because the same uh because they they haven't managed to make that qualitative change happen yet. It takes time, right? Let me ask you a question. Um, Iceland. I've only been to Iceland one time for a few days, so it's not like I'm from there or have any affinity to it or anything to it. And I was trying to write about a place uh, that maybe... First of all, I just looked for the places that had the lowest number of murders. I was just curious. And, you know, in a good year in Iceland, they don't have any, none. And they are also probably the only country that has actually achieved equality between men and women, not just like legal equality, but they actually have an equal number of legislation. All these things, like, I'm sure if you ask an Iceland person, they're not going to say, oh, our world is perfect. But they don't have hungry people. Their jails are mainly for foreigners. Uh, They come there and drink too much. They throw them in. So my question to you is, could the world, in the way you understand it, could the whole world just be as good as Iceland someday? So the answer I want to give you is yes, but then that kind of goes against your previous argument. Because if Iceland has, quote, less abundance a fewer number than the United States because it's, quote, a okay, poorer go ahead, country. Go ahead. Uh, so Iceland on the books, let's, let's compare those three factors in the United States, Canada, and Iceland, for example. So the United States would come on top for abundance, for pretty much tech, technological mm-hmm. birthplace of any advanced technology, and also the most financial... Uh, the, mo- the strongest financially speaking. Absolutely. Both with venture capital and investments and at, at every single level, right? So clearly the abundance, the United States by far the largest. The second one would be presence of good people. So I would say just by the sheer number of the fact that the United States is like 10 times bigger than Canada and maybe 100 times bigger than Iceland, That's exactly that right. would mean that there would be mm-hmm more good people in the United States. And then finally, again, together with with point number one, the progress, uh, and and you discuss how technology always improves, one of the first places where we see technology advances is again in the United States. So Mm -hmm. if your argument is correct, then it shouldn't be Iceland that it's the first utopia, socially Mm -hmm. speaking, but it should be the United States. And if the other way is, is around, and if it's Iceland that's coming closer to that ideal state and not the United States, that to me would suggest that there is another element you're missing in your argument. You have to ask, what makes Iceland different? So let me put it in the Canadian terms. So Canada is much, much poorer on the books in the United States. And yet, I don't know if you know, but the average Canadian lives three and a half years longer than the average American. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, we are almost the same economy. We are culturally speaking very close to each other. We're not that different at all. And yet somehow 
if you walk mm-hmm. across the border and we have less hospitable climate, arguably, <laughs> that's why, Do you, you think know, Canada, can the whole world be like Canada? Why, why not? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's really like, I, I, I get what you're doing and, and you're perfectly valid to, to take my example of an ice, of a, of a, of, a, of an island country, uh, with, uh, 350,000 people and then saying, well, if I compare it to the United States, uh, the United States isn't as good, therefore you're wrong. That, but that really isn't. If, if you're looking at timescales on the arc of history side, I, look, I think maybe what, we're, we're on, on time here. So I think, I think maybe what I can agree with you is uh, uh, we all need to do a much better job to deliver on the utopia and some places are doing far better than other places, but I don't think it's. Uh, but the question is why? Why are some places doing much better job if they have less of those three things that you mentioned as crucial factors for making progress? How are they doing better job? Those are. That's the formula for progress. But I mean, if I had to list it all out, there's a hundred more right like but isn't progress basically supposed to be bringing us closer to a kind of ideal world or ideal state isn't that what progress is supposed to be absolutely that we are better off so for example if a canadian is living three and a half years longer than an american like that to me says a lot a lot about you know the desirable progress that you need to make in in the United States towards longevity. And if you tell me, look, that was 10 years ago and next year would be two and a half years shorter, next year would be one and a half years shorter, and in another year we'll be passing the Canadian life expectancy, then I would say, great, so you made some clear progress, measurable progress. How did you make it? What did you change? What was the cause of that? Well, I would just say two things, which is I, I do think, look, you make good points. You always do. No, nobody is. Uh, but you are doing some apples and oranges, I think, because Canada and the United States have different histories and they have different everything. Like you would not expect them to have the same outcome. But second, I think the bigger thing is I think you and I are just speaking on different time scales. Like when you're like, well, what's going to happen next year? I'm like, that's not even on my like what's going to happen in 50 years from now in 100 and 150 and 200 and 300 and 500 and 900? That's what I'm talking about. Okay, so let's shift on 50 or 100 years then. Okay, so fair okay. enough. Fair enough. Let's shift on your time scale. So progress, because the the progress that we're both talking about so far is kind of very self-serving and anthropocentric progress. And so your argument is like, if you look at a trajectory for the last 10,000 years or maybe even longer, it's all been upwards. But that's only for for humanity and maybe not even for all of us, but only for a certain subset of humanity called the Western world and maybe even for a smaller subset of the Western world. For most of the time, I'm not speaking right now, I'm speaking for most of the time, it has been progress for like, let's say, property only owning males above the age of 30, uh-huh. and so on and so on. And so if you even go beyond the species, we're currently right now in the so-called sixth extinction. 
and it's the fastest extinction at the sort of a, a, a planetary level that we have witnessed so far on our planet. And we know that the cause of that sixth extinction is humanity. So it is hard for me to uh, uh, to think that you would say that all other species other than the human species is progressing or doing better or and or thriving today better than they were thriving 10 or 15 or 20 thousand even like forget it 40 years ago <laughs> in the 70s for god's sake right because we've measured those but i mean don't you think in that time we had extended we have broadened that circle of of what we i mean now we have but is it sufficient because uh, again looking at those scales of decades uh we have the 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 dooms uh, day clock scenario which is a combination of the nuclear uh weapon proliferation and other sort of existential risk uh phenomena such as for example climate change and 12 nobel laureates and a uh, you know 120 of quote the smartest scientists in the world have believed that for the last 3 years humanity is not just closer closest to destroying the world but ever but closest to destroying itself ever and so right now the clock is at 100 seconds before midnight which is the shortest period ever higher danger than the cuban missile crisis and by the way the cuban missile crisis was only for a couple of weeks but the clock has been at 100 seconds for 3 years now and if you look at the situation in ukraine it doesn't look like we're stepping away from that clock anytime soon. So, well, and that's I people understand. looking at the, yeah, at the decades level and, and judging the risks of progress or the, the things that could threaten our progress, because if our survival goes to hell, obviously we're not progressing here, I think. So they're, they're believing that probabilistically speaking, here comes your dice story we are probabilistically not heading towards a good direction. I mean, I don't concur, uh, but there's way too much in there to kind of un unpack. We should, we should do a call just on this. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Okay. So Byron, and it's probably, one of the reasons I know is because we have now been talking for a couple of hours uh, and time is advancing here. So let's just see if we can bring our conversation to an end then. Uh, let me ask you the, the classic sort of three last questions that, that I have for my guests. First of all is what's next for Byron? I think uh, you already mentioned you're, you're writing another book. So perhaps you can uh, share a little bit more about that with us or anything else that, that you think is the major, uh, the major next step in your story. I am writing this other book and uh, it's about the superorganism that I mentioned in passing in this book. Chapter one is what is life? Chapter two is how did it come about? Chapter three, how did multicellular life form? chapter i mean and that's just chapter three like it's really trying to start uh at the very it's really trying to ask what are we like what 
are we? Like, how did we actually come to be here? So uh, that book is killing me. I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, it's really, I, I, I don't want to say like, like, oh, poor me. It's really the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Because again, you still have all that pressure of like, you know, nobody's paying me to write a book report when they buy my books. They're paying me to say something useful that they didn't know. And, and, and these are big weighty problems. Uh, and I keep going back and rewriting and rewriting and reading more. And so I'm doing that. And then uh, now that the lockup, uh, you know, now that COVID is, uh, I hope to travel again with uh, my family. And that's my immediate future, writing this next book, which is unnamed. What's your kind of desired destination for 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 you and your family now in the world when when you can still when when you can I don't travel even know. again? We, you you can see in in the background I had that globe. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. The globe is like a family centerpiece that we gather around uh, ad hoc and look at like what is going on in the world. And I love I love it because it, it just is the so we usually get ideas looking at that. Do you have a set destination already for your next trip? Uh, no. Well, uh, I don't remember if it was Giotte or if it was Rainer Maria Rilke who said that we grow in sync with the the size of the problems that we wrestle with. Huh. So if you're struggling with, with your current book, uh, as I am or as I have been, uh, I think that's only good for us. And he says it's okay to even lose and to fail, as you were mentioning in the beginning of our conversation today, that you think you, you fail a lot more than average. But obviously, the the bigger the, the, the issues we wrestle and we tackle, the, the more we grow. So eventually that gives us some, some sort of success, I believe, or other. I go downstairs and I tell my wife, I'm never writing again. I'm going to finish this book, but I'm never writing another <laughs> word as long as I live. And she just smirks at me. Uh, but that's how I feel right now. Like, I'm going to finish the book and I'm never going to write another word. I mean, I'm sure I will, but that's what it feels like right now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always like that. And then, you know, once you climb that mountain, there'll be a bigger mountain to climb after that, and you'll yeah. feel the same way. Yeah, I don't know what after what is life, but yes. What's That's your second part one? of the answer of what is life and what is human, I think, <laughs> that we are always looking for the bigger mountain to climb next time. Uh, even though we may be complaining and, and, and vowing never again while we're climbing this one, and yet as soon as this one... We get to that peak and, and we see the world and we're looking for the next one. Byron, what's the best place for people to find more about you and your work? Oh, I would say in my books. Uh, but I'm easy to find. I'm Byron Reese everywhere. Like, everywhere. I'm byronreese at gmail.com if you want to email me. Like, I'm the easiest person to find. Okay, Byron, so we have exceeded now two hours in our conversation today, and we've mostly focused on uh, your latest book, which again is uh, called Stories, Dice, and Rocks That Think. So we covered uh, a lot about stories, 
we had a number of stories that you shared with us that were fascinating. We talked about dice and probability. We talked about CPUs or rocks that think. We talked about uh, AI skepticism and techno optimism. So what is the final message that you want to send us away with? What's the most important thing perhaps that you want our viewers and listeners to take away from this conversation with you today? A better world is possible and we and is achievable and we just have to build it. A better world is possible. And achievable. We just have to build it. Well, Byron Reese, thank you very much for being with us today. I had the best time, Nicola. Anytime, I'll be back. <laughs> thank you, Byron. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. 